This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We're just liking the song, Paul Brennan, our producer. It's Wednesday. Can I just tell you, (laughs) Robert Plant, he spends so much time funding the perfect song for our segments, which we are really appreciative of. I'm just telling you. Even if we don't know what day it is. Yeah, sometimes. Okay. Uh, It's among our most read stories. Let's get into it. Uh, On the Bloomberg today, it's about AT&T borrowing a big... Uh, are borrowing a big, are conducting a big uh, bond sale, or planning to, to help refinance its massive debt. That's the big part. Uh, Molly Smith wrote it. She's our corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, New York. Can I just say, though, having read your story, I was thinking it took me back to the days of AT&T and the TCI merger. I remember covering it, interviewing the CEOs at the time, and it's just like the the iterations and changes of AT&T just kind of blow my mind. So tell me where we are today in this big bond offering. Well, with each one of these acquisitions that AT&T has done over the years, there's been, especially since the Time Warner one that closed last year, the the emphasis from the beginning from the company has been, we are going to pay down this debt. We're not planning to operate at this level of leverage. Like The idea is to bring it down. So now we are seeing AT&T follow through on that. So the bond sale today, they are borrowing $5 billion that's going to Um, redeem or pay down bonds that are maturing uh, in the next two years and effectively push those maturities out later. So they're borrowing um, in 10 and 20 year maturities today. But they have $176 billion of debt on the balance sheet. They do. So of $171 maybe. So it's come down a bit. Um, It was as high as as $180 after uh, the Time Warner acquisition closed. So they've been shipping away at it. Uh, The idea this year is that um, with the help of activities like today, as well as free cash flow that they generate after dividends, some smaller asset sales planned as well, that that is going to contribute to a $20 billion debt pay down this year. That is an amazingly large amount of money. Sorry, like, I mean, I, I'm still sort of stuck on, you're like, it was 180, now it's only 171. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. So it, what does this issuance tell us about the broader market? Because I was I was going through your ticker before you came on and you wrote about Altria borrowing $11.5 That, I believe, I'm quoting you back to you, second biggest uh, issuance of the year, second biggest bond sale uh, of the year. So what are we feeling out there these days? So it's been, uh, the a lot of the story, I mean, Altria's issuance a little different. This is to finance and acquisition. But right. the other big ones that we've seen from AT&T, from AB InBev um, earlier in the year, that it has been effectively in response to these big acquisitions, like one that Altria is doing now. So you borrow a lot of money at first in order to fund the acquisition. Now the companies are coming back to borrow, but to refinance the debt and to try to pay it down. It's also telling you, right, to refinance it. Yes. If, we're, if we're getting towards the end of the lower rate cycle environment, right, you're mm-hmm. going to want to refinance it now and lock in those lower rates. And that's exactly what we've been seeing that, um, you know, that I've heard um, Peter Shear from Acro, yeah. um, from Academy Security, sorry, that his, he's called it the 2019 is the year of the debt diet. So it's not just AT&T that's doing it. Uh, I mentioned AB InBev. Verizon has been 
very diligent about managing its balance sheet as well. Uh, GE also, that was like a huge part of their earnings a couple of weeks ago. So I think this is something that, you know, corporate treasurers are definitely actively thinking about. Well, and when you're thinking about when there's billions and billions of dollars on, on the balance sheet, when you can reduce that um, debt or, or some of the debt payments, right? You're talking real money, right? In terms of interest payments. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, I wasn't, I'm not going to do the math off the top of my head and maybe... You know, make a no, <laughs> to but try to but it's, but it, but it's, it's, it's a, a lot. No, that, it is no. absolutely significant, and also in terms of buying yourself time yeah. to push these things out later, or if you have the cash just to pay it down outright, that's even better. And so, what happens next? What What do you worry about in term, when you have this sort of activity? What could stall it? Because we, you know, we talk to people all the time about this sort of uncertain mm-hmm. U.S. economy and and an even more uncertain uh, global economy. Are people trying to sort of get while the getting's good here? Yeah, I mean, credit markets right now have been on a roll. So as long as capital markets are open and accessible, this is an amazing window to jump in on. Issuance has been really strong. I mean, it's been more than like 20 billion, maybe even closer to 30 billion of New investment grade issuance just this week alone. And today's Wednesday, not Tuesday, but Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, and we've right. already had this much issuance in one week. So the, you've seen a lot of the, the companies are taking advantage of this rally in credit right now that was spurred from the dovish Fed comments uh, a week or so ago and propelled by some better earnings that have been coming in, some positive eco data. So credit has been very strong lately and the window's open to do this kind of activity. I was thinking about the conversation, Jason, you and I had with Lonnie Jaffe of Inside Venture Partners. This is something, it's a, uh, you could actually get our Bloomberg Business Week extra podcast uh, over the weekend. Um, but he is a venture capitalist. He's somebody who worked at CA and IBM for a long time, helping them acquire companies. Um, but he talked about kind of being late in the credit cycle, yeah. right? In terms of, you know, he's doing deals and deals are coming across uh, his desk. But he reminded, you know, that I said, what's the environment look like? We're late in the credit cycle, right? So if you're a company, you kind of want to, like you said, do it now when the environment seems very positive. Right. And we that's, I think, also going toward we haven't been seeing as many companies going through on share buybacks, dividends, or like increasing them at least. Or well, you don't want to do it been, when Chuck. You're yeah, not when, um, going was to it Bernie Sanders <laughs> and others. And oh, Chuck yeah, Schumer, yeah. Chuck really Schumer. Co- right. The Twitter war over the share buybacks is going crazy, but this isn't the time to be doing intentional, intentionally leveraging activities. This is the time to go in the opposite direction. Always love catching up with Molly Smith, corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. I think back fondly, you joined us at the U.S. Open. It feels oh, like 100 years ago. I we'll be there before too long. It's funny that you said that. I just looked up the dates and I was like making some notes on my calendar there just yesterday. Well, well, even closer is the French Open. Maybe we should go to Paris. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we talk all the time about Mike Regan was like, you know where I should go? The Jamaica Stock Exchange. You and he got to go. go. So I think we're planting a seed here. Molly Smith, <laughs> always love being Try with you. Try and get that one through uh, the bosses. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Best in show these days has to be Blackstone uh, when it comes to the big, as we now call them, alternative asset managers. They used to be private equity firms. Before that, they were buyout shops. Before that, they were bootstrappers. You go back through the history, but what's clear is that Blackstone has figured something else out, and they figured it out before anyone else. Stephen Gandell is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and joins us here in our studio. So what do you make of what Blackstone's been up to? Because it should, we should point out, this is part of the real estate issue. 
Right. So what they figured out is there was a lot of money on the table to be invested. There's a lot of demand for investing in real estate. And, uh, and that that market is more liquid to get into than, say, buyouts. And, th- and there's more transactions going on. Well, I guess that's more liquid. But it's more easy to deploy the capital, and it's more liquid. And so a few years ago, in 2007, they did this very large deal um, to buy equity office properties. It about doubled the size of their firm. Their, they had about $20 billion, double size, more than doubled the size of their portfolio. It worked out great, even in the face of... Uh, the financial crisis. Which is interesting because I remember that because we all thought Sam Zell, man, how smart is he kind of right. selling He thought he t- was getting out of the top two. Right. And he sort of was, but, you know, he was early. Blackstone uh, m- uh, capitalized on that, and the business has taken off ever since. And now they're the you know, alternative manager, as you said, but next to their uh, private equity rivals, they're double the size and market cap of KKR. Right. And what's so interesting is that, as you say, real estate has really propelled that. And, you know, it hasn't just propelled the company. It really propelled the architect of all of it, Jonathan Gray, uh, John Gray, into the number two job at at the whole firm. He, uh, you know, pun intended, leveraged this into, (laughs) you know, leadership uh, of the whole company. And that same year did the Hilton deal. And uh, so, what happens next for, for these guys? Because obviously now everybody sees it. It's a very public playbook. Yes, but it's a large market. Um, and it seems to, we'll have to see if it does, but it seems to give them a diversity that the other firms don't have yet. Yeah. They're trying to get. It'll take them, maybe take them all the next decade to figure it out. And for the time... And first mover advantage a little bit. Yes, uh, and they have this knowledge they get from the real estate market that they can leverage in, in the buyout market. And it gives them a premium stock. I mean, these stocks haven't been great, the private equity firm stocks. But uh, as it goes, the Blackstone stock trades at a premium. And that lets you do things that yeah. other companies can't do. I mean, having a, a better public equity uh, lets you be more nimble. What about the environment changing, um, Stephen, as a result of, I feel like, more scrutiny from politicians, right? We've certainly seen Elizabeth Warren looking at private equity overall when they're involved in a deal. Uh, I think about Sears or Toys R Us and, and the like. So I'm just wondering how that might potentially change the model going forward of private equity investing in real estate. Right. So there, there, there's the positives and there's the, the downsides, right? <laughs> the downsides are Always, right? that, that there puts a bigger, there's a bigger target. On, on Blackstone's back and and, pri- and public uh, pri- sorry private equity in general, but Blackstone's uh, back. They're much bigger when Elizabeth Warren goes after them. They can they, she could also say not only do you run the world, but you're also everyone's landlord. Uh, and so when there is a buyout, and there will be one of these deals eventually, where a private equity firm buys a company, it doesn't work out, it goes bankrupt. Those workers are going to be out of a job, and then if the private equity like Blackstone owns individual houses, they could also be kicking those workers out of their. I can see the headlines right yeah. already. Well, and I don't want to lose sight of that because that was one of the other big bets that Blackstone made in the wake of the financial crisis. All those foreclosures, they went in and became a massive landlord in cities across uh, the country from a single family home perspective. Yes. And the other thing about the other side of the diversification is, yes, it's some diversification, but it's not that much diversification, yeah. right? So when interest, if interest rates go up a lot um, – or, you know, credit gets very tight, real estate's going to feel that just like uh, buyouts. Yeah. And so it gives them some diversification. The other thing is, is if there's a commercial market, uh, commercial real estate bust, which some of the big bank CEOs have been warning, they, uh, it's going to hit them harder than their rivals. 
Yeah, it's so fascinating. But in the meantime, other private equity firms, and I know you told us earlier Blackstone doesn't like to be called a private equity firm. But Alternative asset manager. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yes. But in the meantime, other PE firms are looking at what yes, doing because it's worked closely. out so well. Not only I mean, looking, but doing it. They're doing it. They're following them right in because it's, it's worked out so well for them. It's, it's allowed Blackstone to double their assets. And, and as I said, it's it's right ignore. now investors like it. They like the model. Stephen Gendel is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion here in New York. That's where he joined us. Check out uh, his story. It's in the magazine, also available now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. And more on this story, as Carol mentioned, in our weekend show on radio and on Bloomberg Television. I'm doing That's definitely what uh, investors in Akamai are saying today. Uh, stock's up about 2% here, 7071 a share. This after uh, earnings coming up. The stock, by the way, up about 16% so far this year. Let's get into what's going on at the company. Tom Leighton is here. He's the CEO at Akamai, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. I am saying the company, right? Akamai, yes. I just remember like years ago, everybody be like, wait, do we have it right? Da, da, da. Um, you know what's so interesting? I want to talk about the quarter, and then I want to talk about what you guys are doing, because it plays to us a conversation we had with Lonnie Jaffe, a venture capitalist over at Inside Venture, just about the idea of software and how it's changing how companies do things and kind of impacting our economy. All right, we'll get to that in a moment. Talk to me about the quarter. Oh, we had a great quarter. Yeah. Uh, We were up over 50% on the bottom line. Our security business is booming up nearly 40% year over year. Uh, So really exciting. What do you hear from your clients, and what are their biggest concerns, and what are the, the new initiatives that you kind of need to keep on top of? Well, uh, everybody's worried about cybersecurity. Uh, you know, DOS attacks, which uh, we stop, uh, and that's been very successful for us. Having a site be corrupted or taken over, uh, content stolen from the site or manipulated, that's an important problem. We stop that. Are your clients seeing more of those problems? Are, are the, recur- the currents of them or the activity of them? Oh, they're happening frequent? all the time. You don't see the headlines so much because most of the big companies now use us to stop that. Uh, the most recent product is Bot Management. Been very successful, our fastest selling product in memory. Uh, people don't realize it, but most transactions now on the internet are not human. Uh, they're bot, and uh, most of those are malicious. You know, a bot is a you know, machine that's been taken over, and it's used to try to steal your bank account, your commerce account. Uh, and so we have to understand what entity is coming to the website to give the appropriate response. And just because it has your login ID and your password doesn't mean it's you. And we got to detect that. So let's talk about the blockchain, because I feel like, you know, we, we talk about it, we talk around it. People get confused as to what it is. They conflate it with Bitcoin and crypto and all those different things. You are actually putting this into practice right uh, at the edge of this. How does it look from from your seat? And what are your customers saying, more importantly, about how they're going to use it and what's the appetite? Yeah, blockchain is a method for making an update to a ledger, you know, authenticating that a transaction's happened, that maybe I spent a dollar for something or I gave you a dollar. And it's a way to make sure that's put into the system and recorded. Uh, It can be used to do things like Bitcoin to make a digital currency. Uh, But what we're doing is the ledger update system, and we're doing it in a way that's a lot more scalable, uh, so that you can do millions of transactions a second. 
and so that it's faster. So the end-to-end latency from when I, I swipe the card or, or push the button is two seconds, and then that transaction is recorded, all the accounts are updated, and, it's, and it has to be secure, of course. Uh, and so we're doing this in partnership with uh, Mitsubishi Bank in Japan. They're one of the world's largest banks, the largest in Japan. And we created a joint venture with them that will bring this to market to support the uh, transactions starting in Japan uh, in 2020. And why them? How, how did that come about? And, you know, because financial services has been one of these places that we've heard mm-hmm. it makes the most sense, the blockchain uh, that is. Tell us about some of the contours of that deal. Yeah, well, actually, uh, they've been a customer of our security services uh, and web acceleration services for a long time. And they actually sought us out uh, as a partner for the Mm. blockchain effort because they were familiar with our unique edge platform. Uh, You know, we have, you know, servers in 4,000 pops. Uh, We're everywhere, pretty much where people are in the world. And, uh, you know, they understood that by being close to the end users and having a secure and trusted service that was really fast, we could develop a blockchain technology that could really support, uh, you know, transactions at scale. You know, and I, I think the idea is that, you know, someday all transactions will be recorded in this way. Right. And that the traditional legacy ways of doing, you know, transactions, which are slow and expensive, uh, will be updated. All right. So is it working? Have you used it? I'm curious how, how it's going. Oh, yeah. We've uh, developed a technology and uh, proved, you know, that it works. It's not uh, commercial yet in the sense that transactions in Japan are not using it today. Okay. And the goal is to get that to start happening in the first half of 2020. So based on your experience, because we do, and I feel like for the last couple of years in particular, we've had a lot of conversations about the impact that blockchain in particular could have on the financial community. So from what you're seeing and your work with um, MUFG, where do you expect it to go, blockchain? Will it ultimately be that every financial transaction at some point down the road will go through a blockchain? Well, that's sort of the end state. I mean, you guys probably hope hope. (laughs) Yeah, that's what you'd hope for. But I mean, do you see it realistically that that's where we're moving towards? I think so because uh, it's just – it's so much more efficient and scalable. And as as more transactions are moving online, you've got to worry about security, which is a – it's a huge issue. And so I I think you will see that more and more of the transactions will – start being done in this sort of a new paradigm. And is it a case, Tom, that different blockchains will ultimately be able to talk to one another? Because I, I was curious about this, that do does the financial system, let's say for trading, all have to kind of uh, subscribe to the same blockchain? How, how will this ultimately work? Well, I don't think they have to be the same blockchain. In fact, there's a lot of folks working on different blockchain platforms out there. No, I know, right. So it doesn't have to be one. In fact, that's a a key reason why we partnered with Mitsubishi as one of the leading banks of the world, uh, because I think you need that kind of partner to really bring it to bear in a major way. So when we have a guy like you in this seat, uh, certainly someone who co-founded the the company back in the day. I mean, it's been a pretty remarkable 20 years. This isn't what the company started out doing. Obviously, blockchain probably only existed in the the minds and the imaginations of people uh, back then. You started out doing content delivery, keep keep me honest. Uh, What's that evolution been like? What's been the biggest sort of surprise uh, uh, along the way? You know, it's been an exciting 20 years. And believe it or not, we're pretty much on the same business plan as when we started. 
fact, you can go get our roadshow slides from 99, and uh, it looks pretty close to what we're doing today, which was to start with basic delivery, do video, uh, then web acceleration and application uh, management and acceleration, and then security. Uh, in fact, we tried to start our security business back around 2001, but, and it worked for the government. You know, so they bought our services way back when. But was but other else people were like, yeah. Nobody no. else was interested. It just took us forever. What it really took was the groups out of the Middle East bringing down North American banks at will. Uh, right. And around 2012, I think. And uh, I always think about when Jamie Dimon made that comment about what I'm worried about or what I'm spending the most on. And it was like cybersecurity cons- concerns. And I, that was a few years back. And I think we all were like... Oh, but, yeah. but way back then, <laughs> yeah. it, it was not top of mind, not no. top of list for a lot of CEOs. No, and we, you know, we had services we were trying to sell, but really it was pretty much the government were the ones, only ones buying it. Uh, until that was, you know, the banks being taken down for days yeah. sometimes. That got people's attention. Um, a pleasure to have you in-house. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tom Layton, he's Chief Executive Officer, co-founder of Akamai Technologies, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Wednesday. We are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. President Trump, during his State of the Union address, and really what he's making references uh, to is something that we've often seen connected with one of the newest members of Congress. We're talking about AOC. Uh, so let's go. Let's. What's the matter? Are you making I fun? love that we're just like just straight. We're straight going to AOC. Like she, you know, we were talking earlier about Magic Alexandria Johnson. Like Cone. we just call him Magic. Like AOC. All right, we know, you know who we're talking about. Anyway, let's get into this story because it seems like AOC and Trump actually have something uh, in common. This story by Sean Donna, and he's our senior trade and globalization reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our uh, Bloomberg um, studio in the nation's capital. Hey, Sean, nice to have you here with us. So tell us a little bit about um, what Trump and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have in common. Yeah, so thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, if you look at, at, at broadly at economic policy, there's no question that there's a big gap between Donald Trump and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, he wants to cut taxes. She wants to raise taxes on the wealthy. Uh, he wants more coal-fired power plants. She wants uh, a Green New Deal. But there's one area of economic policy where they kind of agree more than you might think, and that's on trade. Uh, that's the stuff I write about. Uh, and there's a lot of criticism that I've been listening to in the last couple of years coming from within the Republican Party uh, and other uh, elements from the center right uh, here in Washington, uh, where you really hear people start kind of questioning Trump's trade policy and his emphasis on the role of the state. And that's where they make a link to socialism, which he's been railing against over the past week. Well, and Sean, I love this story, by the way, and we count on you to bring us new and interesting uh, aspects. We were bragging on your Fortnite story as we were thinking <laughs> we about this uh, coming on. But, you know, one of the most interesting things, and you know trade as, as well as anyone, the president is really hard to pin down on this specific issue, uh, especially if you take sort of his whole business and, you know, nascent political career uh, into account. He, he's hard to pin down day to day. Yeah, he's hard to pin down on, on, on the kind of details of policy, but he's not that hard to pin down when you look at the broad direction yeah, of good his point. policies. You know, he 
likes to use the presidential bully pulpit to bully people and bully companies into keeping factories in the United States in a way that past presidents uh, wouldn't have. If President Obama had been doing that, you certainly would have heard calls from uh, Capitol Hill, from Republicans up there calling that a socialist intervention, Right. Uh, that uh, he was somehow intervening in the free market. Uh, he also is very uh, clear in terms of his direction of trade policy in wanting other countries to and governments in other countries to buy more from the United States and to direct their uh, companies to, to buy more. We're seeing that in the China talks that are going on right now where the Chinese are stepping up their purchases of soybeans. And there's this kind of irony in that, in that the U.S. is pushing for the Chinese government to, to get its uh, big state-owned enterprises to buy more commodities from the United States, while at the same time the United States is trying to get some fundamental economic reforms from the Chinese, which essentially involve moving towards a more of a free market model, a more market based model, if you listen to some of the, the trade negotiators. So it's this, look, no one's accusing Donald Trump of being a dictionary socialist. You know, this is right. uh, here. Let's be perfectly <laughs> that clear. That's, that's not the headline. That's a yeah. great headline, but it's not the headline right. today. <laughs> the, 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 but if you look at the way he likes to use the state and sees government as this kind of, uh, as this way to, 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 to really intervene in some pretty intricate company decisions in some cases. The new NAFTA, for example, determines how much uh, auto workers should be paid in, in a factory, $17 an hour, if you want to benefit from, from, from duty-free access to the United States. So, I mean, that's something that we haven't seen from past presidents, who, who generally the view on trade has been, let's kind of set these broad rules, let's encourage uh, the market, uh, let's kind of create a framework for the market to do its thing, whereas Trump is much more interventionist. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. There's someone that you talk to, and, and there's a quote in your story about um, it's not what uh, blah, 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 Trump's accumulating record on trade amounts to quote extensive economic planning. It's not what companies would do in an open market situation. So it is fascinating, right? Here's a guy from business who's out there really trying to be very specific about what we can and cannot do in terms of trade flows and what other countries have to do versus you know really kind of embracing that globalization or the concept of globalization. Yeah, and it's a reconfiguring of, of the presidencies in some ways. He sees himself as the CEO of, of a corporation called America, you could argue. Right. You know, and all these different units need to do what he says because he's the CEO. He's the commander in chief. That is something that past presidents have been uncomfortable with. Sean Donnan is senior trade and globalization reporter, one of our faves for Bloomberg down in the nation's capital. The 991 studio is where he joined us. His story is on the terminal today. Uh, and I got to say, check out the story in part because the compare and contrast of the photos of AOC <laughs> and the president are uh, something to behold. What's also as well. fascinating is I think it, it's interesting that everybody's kind of talking about trade. And there's a lot of folks that we've had on air that have said we need to do something better in terms of trade policy, but we also need to do it in a smart way and understand how trade flows work to make sure that we do it in a right way. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. 
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Sorry, I was like, I love our next guest, and so I've been chatting away with him. Anyway, let's just get right to it. We've got a show to do here, Carol. <laughs> Sorry, Randy. He's Watts. part of it, so we can do, we can continue this conversation here on the radio. I know. Well, Randy Watts is back with us. I love when he's here. He's executive vice president, chief investment strategist at William O'Neill and Company, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And I said to you, Randy, when you walked in, I'm like, no, wait, when were you here last? It was mid. November. Things were still looking good for 2018. Everything was awesome back then. Everything was awesome. And then we got into December and it all came undone. And then we got to January and everything seemed okay. What do you make of the market moves that we've seen? So maybe I'll talk first start with technicals. Yeah. So this has been a very strong move for the market off the bottom from that uh, December 24th low. Uh, we look at it now and it really did feel like a bottom. It was it was a pretty it was a pretty a pretty major bottom in in the market. We'll see if that will be the final one of the of the whole cycle. But if you look at the market now, you know, year to date the S&P is up almost 10% now. The Nasdaq's up more, more than 12. And I think what's important about this rally is it's been very broad based. All 11 S&P sectors are above their 50-day moving averages. The S&P itself today has broken through, on the upside, its 200-day moving average. So it's been, it's been a very good market technically in terms of both distance and breadth. Does that necessarily mean sustainability in terms of the upward trend? I think what's, what's more interesting is it's very unusual for the market to have a big down month and then a big up month back to back. There have only been 13 times for the S&P since 1970 where you had a month where the market went down 5% or more and then went up the next month more than 5%. Historically, when that happens, returns are pretty good the next five months. They tend to average better than historical norms over the next six months. So technically, this is a very good setup for the market. Mm. What's unusual, though, is you're having a little bit of a dichotomy in that the technicals are acting well, but obviously the earnings season hasn't been that great this year. Right. And so how do you synthesize all that? And and I have to ask, how do you synthesize what remains a very uneasy political, geopolitical environment, especially? I, I think uh, a couple of things. First is people raised a lot of cash at the end of last year. There was a big wall of worry for, for stocks to climb as this year started. And there have been a couple of events. The first, most obviously, is the Fed going on pause. Yeah. When you combine that with some of the other central banks, the, the name of the game right now is the central banks are easy again. And that has clearly helped the market. If you look at the Fed funds futures uh, uh, in, uh, estimates, they're looking for basically no rate increases for the rest of the year. So that's, that's helped the market. I think right now the bulls believe China is going to get solved with a deal. There isn't going to be a second budget shutdown. And also that Q1 is going to be the low point for earnings growth and economic growth for the year. That now that the Fed has gotten easier, what's going to happen is growth is going to reaccelerate in the back half of the year. Now, it's important to note forward guidance coming out of this earnings season has been very poor. Right. If you go back to October, we were looking for 8 or 9% type earnings growth in Q1. 
that number is now minus 2%. So it would be the first down earnings quarter for the market since the second quarter of 2016. But you saying that reminds me how fickle or how things can change so quickly, right? So there was a lot of optimism in October just a few months ago, right? And then December happens, you know, and everything kind of comes undone. And we've seen now the estimates come down. The estimates could go back up again, right? If we start to see this continued support here in the equity markets. Absolutely. What we're telling our clients right now is to be cautiously optimistic. You have to respect the strength uh, that the market's showing technically. However, I think you're not going to really be out of the woods till you see earnings estimates start to stabilize and go back up. Now, hopefully that's going to happen in the second quarter, but that's still a ways out and we're we're really not sure fundamentally yet if that's going to happen. So what are you most worried about? I think, I think uh, you know, I guess what we're most worried about is that the global economic weakness that is happening in places like Europe, where the economic numbers have been very poor, and the slowdown in China continues to really hit U.S. multinational companies, and that the U.S. basically can't avoid the slowdown that's happening outside our outside our country. Well, and, and I wanted to ask you about that because I know you manage a, a team of researchers all over the world. I do wonder, even almost from a process perspective, you know, how do they bubble up the right stuff to you? How do you synthesize all those inputs that have got to be coming at you all the time? Well, we really use a three-prong approach. We use, we use technicals to identify what's working in the market. We always want to take our direction from the market. We use fundamentals to try to really focus on growth industries where we see a lot of potential in the future. And then we use a variety of quantitative factors uh, relating to revenue strength, return on capital, et cetera, to identify the best companies. All right. So where are, when you go through your models, like I'm looking at, as you mentioned, all 11 industry, major industry groups in the S&P are up today, uh, are up this year, excuse me, industrials, energy, real estate, information technology, your top performers uh, at the bottom of the pack, but still up for the year, materials, healthcare, utilities, uh, which are kind of, I feel like your safer plays, right? Which I guess to some extent makes sense considering the turnaround we've seen this year. So what are your technicals identifying as really maybe some some of the growth opportunities. Well, well, the big leadership in this rally has really been technology, particularly software. I've heard this story before. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. we like a lot of names in there, companies like ServiceNow, companies like Salesforce.com, a newer company called a New, New Relic. We really think it's important that technology continues to do well. I think if technology was really, really to start to underperform, that would be very bad for the market. It's also an awful lot of capitalization of the market. So I think it's going to be hard for the market to work higher if technology is really tanking. Do you feel like coming off of the tech earnings that we just got, that you feel comfortable about what we heard from them and and the reports? I think what's going on is that the slower growth outlook right now favors growth stocks, and investors are willing to pay up a little bit for companies that they feel have a very strong secular growth pattern that's a little bit divorced from just the overall economy. So I want to ask you, I know you love technicals and Carol loves technicals. You're both much smarter than I am, but you're also a student of history. You you understand, I feel like humans very well. You know, you study mindfulness and stress, you know, within the context of, of business. How does the market feel to you right now? Like setting aside all the numbers, what does it feel like? Uh, Again, we like the technical patterns of the market, but I am a little nervous that everyone is assuming that everything's going to get solved in, a, in sort of a lockstep fashion and very orderly, and I'm worried there could be a surprise on that. Also, I don't like the fact that how quickly earnings estimates have come down. So until I see those numbers stabilize, I'm still going to be very kind of nervous and cautious about the market. And it is interesting, though, because I feel like a lot of folks are coming on, too, and talking a lot about recession and kind of, you know, putting money into cash or 
safer investments. Just got about you know 25 seconds left here. I just feel like everybody's piling on that conversation. I'm not sure we're going to have an actual economic recession, but I'm worried about a profit slowdown or a profit recession. recession. And, you know, margins have also been under pressure this last quarter. So I'm less worried about the U.S. going into a recession than earnings being disappointing. This is why I love this guy. He's the best. He's the best. (laughs) Randy Watts, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill and Company, joining us here in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.